So glad that all of you are here. And um, last time we left off in chapter 3 with Paul praying for the church to abound in love and that God would establish their hearts in holiness. Now the thing about these letters of Paul that you need to understand is that the, these are letters. So think of like somebody writing you a letter and there's no chapter breaks in them, all right? I don't know if any of you write your letters that way. Chapter one, you know, no. But, but these were put in by the translators and so there's no chapter break. So the idea, the focus of chapter three carries right into chapter four. And so again, we saw the, there in verses uh, beginning in verse 11, where Paul was talking about that they would abound in love and that God would establish their hearts in holiness. And tonight we see where Paul is going to continue to speak about their personal holiness, but in one particular area. Now, here's what I want to let you in on tonight. Tonight we're going to look at verses 1 through 12 tonight. And the focus of tonight the theme of tonight is holiness. This is what Paul's going to be hitting on, is, is their conduct, their holiness in this one particular area of their lives. Then next week, we're going to pick up in verse 13 of chapter 4 and go all the way through chapter 5. And the theme of that will be hope because Paul is talking, we'll see next week, about the rapture of the church, the second coming of Christ, and the hope that we have in Jesus. And so because those themes connect in chapter 4 and chapter 5, I decided to break up the teaching in that way. And so next week we'll finish 1 Thessalonians. But tonight, he's talking here about their personal holiness. He begins in verse 1, follow along as I read. He says, finally then, brethren. Now I love this, I gotta just say this. Paul is a true pastor here, all right? He's saying, finally, and he's got two whole chapters left. I love that. So I, I just had to say that. So anytime that I say in closing and I go for another 15 minutes, I, I'm just following the Apostle Paul, all right? I'm just following his example. Finally then, brethren, we urge and exhort in the Lord Jesus that you should abound more and more. So He's saying here, we, we want to see that you would keep growing, that you keep going further in your faith, abounding, we saw last week, in love, abounding in faith. And then he says, just as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, for you know what commandments we gave you through the Lord Jesus, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you should abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God that no one should take advantage of and defraud his brother in this matter, because the Lord is the avenger of all such, as we also forewarned you and testified. For God did not call us to uncleanness, but to holiness. Therefore, he who rejects this does not reject man, but God who also 
has, has also given us the Holy Spirit. Let's pause right there. Now, verse three, right away, this should jump off the page at us because he says, this is the will of God. And you know what? As a pastor, that is the number one question that I have people that ask me all the time. What is God's will for my life? Well, what's interesting is the Bible gives us several things that tell us what is God's, what I'd say his revealed will for us. We see several places in scripture, examples of that. For instance, in 1 Timothy chapter 2 verse 4, it lays out that God's will is that we would be saved. Now, obviously he gives us a choice, but that's his heart. That's his will, that we would be saved. In Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2, it talks about laying our lives on the altar before God as a living sacrifice and it says that this is the good and acceptable will of God that our lives would be transformed in first Peter chapter 2 it talks about this is the will of God that we would have a good witness as his followers in first in Ephesians chapter 5 verse 17 and 18 he says this is the will of God that you would be continually being filled with the Holy Spirit God knowing that that our need to live dependent lives upon the Holy Spirit and in first Thessalonians chapter 5 verse 18 we'll see this next week it says that this is the will of God that you would give thanks in everything but what we're seeing here tonight is a big one he says this in verse 3, this is the will of God, your sanctification. Another way to put that is your holiness. The word sanctification means to be set apart. It speaks of being dedicated to God. And sanctification is both a standing, or we might say a position, and a process. Our standing before God is that we have, as believers, as those who have given our lives to Christ, is that we have been set apart for God. We have been, the Bible tells us, bought with a precious price. And God did not hold back anything in rescuing you and redeeming you. You know, if our redemption could have been paid with rubies or gold or silver or real estate, you know what? God has an endless supply of those things. But what he chose and what was needed to redeem you and purchase you and buy you out of the slavery of sin was what God only had one of, his only begotten son. And it was the blood of his son that made that way for us to be redeemed. So you have been bought with a price. You belong to God. That is what we call your positional sanctification. You have been set apart for God. But then the Bible also talks about practical sanctification. And that's the way that you and I live. That, that speaking of a set apart lifestyle, and Paul zeroes in here on one or on the subject of their sexual immorality. He says, this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Now, the phrase sexual immorality is one word in the Greek, and it's the word pornea. We actually get our English word pornography from that word. But pornea is very broad because it speaks of any type of sexual activity outside of marriage. So premarital sex, extramarital sex, homosexual sex, all of that is included in this word pornea. 
Now, Thessalonica, you have to understand this, was a very immoral and sex-crazed society. They lived in a society where that had an everything or anything goes type of mentality. They had temples, if you can imagine this, that employed prostitutes that went out recruiting members, men, to join their temples and their church to worship their idols. And the way that they did that was engaging in sexual immorality. So when your husband announced that he was heading off to church, heading off to the temple, you knew what he was probably going to be doing. That's what was, that was rampant in that culture. Now we live in a sex crazed culture as well. That's why the pornography business is a multi-billion dollar industry and it is targeting, it's so sad to think this, it's targeting kids as young today as 8, 9, and 10 years old. Because people can see it right on the, the flip of their fingertips, on their phone, or on their tablets, or on their computer. And it's literally ruining lives, and ruining marriages, and ruining families. And our culture has a tendency to glorify sexual immorality and adultery in movies and and in television shows. And we live today in the the hookup mentality that is rampant in high schools and rampant on college campuses where people are just engaging in in casual sex. And and we can look, if you were watching, you know, here the other night, the Jesus Revolution movie, we know that, you know, all of that, that was so rampant in the hippie movement. But and, And they might do it, you know, in big groups out in fields. We just do it today behind closed doors. But it's just as rampant as it was then. So times have maybe changed in the way that this is being conducted today. But I'll tell you this, God's will hasn't changed. He still wants his people to live pure and not be given over to sexual immorality. And so Paul says, this is the will of God, your sanctification that you should abstain from sexual immorality. Now the word abstain means to refrain from. To refrain from any type of sexual activity that is outside of marriage. So if if you're having sex today with somebody that you are not married to, you are in sin. Now, somebody might not like that. They might get mad at me, but I'm just telling you what God said. So, you know, don't get mad at me. You can go out in the parking lot tonight and shake your fist at God if you want to. I wouldn't stand very close to that person if they, they do that. But it's not sin against me. It's sin against God. But I want you to notice here the simplicity of Paul's command. I think this is something we have to really take note of. He just says abstain. Abstain. It's not 12 steps. Not some program. He says abstain from sexual immorality. And then he adds, and each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor. Now this is a very interesting idea. Because our vessel is our body. That's what he's talking about here. This is your vessel. And it's interesting because God wants our vessel. He says your vessel, your body has been set apart for me. And this verse reminds me of something else Paul wrote in 2 Timothy chapter 2. So I want you to keep your place here in 1 Thessalonians 4. Turn a few pages over to the right to 2 Timothy chapter 2. And I want you to see something here. 
I want you to mark these verses and draw a little, make a little note in 1 Thessalonians, the 2 Timothy chapter 2, in, in your, boat, your, your margin, so you kind of know how these are connected. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 20, Paul writes this. But in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honor and some for dishonor. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from the latter, he will be a vessel of honor, sanctified and useful for the master, prepared for every good work. So see this connection? In 1 Thessalonians, Paul says that we need to learn how to possess our own vessels. And here, Paul says that there are different vessels, some for dishonor and some for honor. And he says, therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from the latter, from what the dishonor, he will be a vessel of honor, sanctified for the use of the master. But here's what happens. The enemy will tell us when we have blown it, when we sin, when, when we fail, when we give Give into our flesh, he'll say, oh, you're a vessel of dishonor. And you're never going to change. It's never going to be any different from you. But Paul would say that is not so. And God wants every one of us to be a vessel of honor. And here's how it happens. Notice what he says next when he says, flee also youthful lust, but pursue righteousness and faith and love and peace with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. Notice that. Flee also youthful lust. If you like to write in your Bible, right next to that word flee, the word, this is the Greek word, it's fugo. F-O-G-O, fugo, okay? I love this word because every time I see it, this is what I think, fool, go, okay? (laughs) Don't be a fool, get out of there, you know, run, flee, youthful lust, he says here, get out of that situation. So this is what Paul is telling us about how to walk in purity, how to be that vessel of honor. He gives us two ideas here in in 2 Timothy chapter 2. That we're number one to run from temptation, and number two, we're to run to the congregation. We run from temptation. Remember Joseph? You read about Joseph in the book of Genesis. He's sold into slavery, and they're in Egypt, and he ends up being a servant in the house of Potiphar, and, and Potiphar really likes Joseph, and so he ends up promoting him above the other servants. He gives him this place. He's overseeing like everything in his house. He has like the, the keys to everything. Well, we read there in the book of Genesis that, that Potiphar's wife took a liking to Joseph. She begins to, you know, lust after him. She's like a cougar on the prowl, you know. She's looking at this young guy and thinking, you know, I want him and Potiphar's always gone. And, and so the Bible says that she literally is baiting him. Like, oh, he's like, hey, Joseph, lie with me. That's the way it says. It reads that, lie with me several times. He, he, he's, she's not saying, let's take a nap together. No, she's like saying, I want to have sex with you. Come lie with me. And every single time, Joseph, he, he just turns away from that. Like, nope, not doing that, not going there, not, not going to you know, betray Potiphar. I'm not going to betray God. Joseph was a man who walked in the fear of God. 
Now, some of you might, have, might be thinking, well, how come he didn't just quit his job? Because he couldn't. He was a slave, all right? He was stuck in that situation. But there finally came a day when she is just, just so hot for him that she reaches out, grabs a hold of his, his you know, collar and says, lie with me now. And the Bible says he ran right out of his clothes. First streaker in the, in the world right there, okay? He just runs out. But it's a great example. I always think of that when I think of, of this idea of fleeing youthful lust. It's Joseph, Joseph running from that situation. So you run from temptation. That's how you become a vessel of honor. You run from temptation, but you don't just run from temptation. You run to the congregation. Notice what it says. Flee also youthful lust. Here's the key. But, everybody say but. Pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. So you run from sexual temptation by pursuing something else. Faith, love, peace with other like-minded people. And this is one of the biggest mistakes that I see people make, especially young people, is they try to run from lust, but they don't run anywhere. You flee youthful lust by pursuing righteousness and faith and love and peace with, with others who are pursuing those same things. I think you could sum it up in this way. You flee youthful lust by pursuing Jesus because he is all those things with other people who are also pursuing him as well. You know, the Bible tells us that sin brings shame. We see this in the book of Genesis with the very first people, Adam and Eve, when they sinned. What, what happened? It says they realized they were naked. And then it says that they hid themselves. So it, first thing it does is it brings shame. And then shame leads to isolation. They hid themselves. We have to hide ourselves. But we see in that picture, and I love this. It's like we're talking about God's love that never fails. As we were singing about that tonight. You know, God comes there into the garden doing what? Pursuing Adam and Eve to rescue them. And he sent Jesus to come and, and pursue us to rescue us from sin and shame. So sin leads to, or sin brings shame. Shame leads, shame leads to isolation. That's what the devil wants us to do. But no, no, no. What we need to do when we're facing temptation, and even at times when we give in to temptation, we need to run to the congregation. And when somebody is running to the congregation, here's the key. We need to make sure that we don't shoot them. It's been said that the Christian army is the only army that shoots its wounded. Because we have a tendency to do that, don't we? But remember what the writer of Hebrews said? He said this, and let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, building one another up and so much more as you see the day approaching. He says, don't, don't forsake one another, but stir up one another. We flee youthful lust we become these vessels of honor by running from temptation running to the congregation and paul is wanting here the thessalonians to go further he wants them to grow in in holiness by abstaining from sexual morality now turn back to first thessalonians chapter four 
Because Paul also gives us here in verses 5 through 12 reasons why we should abstain. And I want you to see this. If you're taking notes, number one, we should abstain because sexual sin reflects secular values. Notice verse 5. He says that you should abstain from sexual immorality, actually verse 3, that each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor. Here's verse 5. Not, everybody say not. Not in passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. He's making a distinction. He's saying, look, you, you've, you belong to God. You've been bought with a price. You know the Lord. So act like it. Don't act like those who don't know the Lord. Don't be like the Gentiles. You know, animals have no self-control. They just give in to their urges, right? They're going to go poop on your dog, go poop on your neighbor's yard if you'll let them. He's just going to give in to the urge, you know. And they give in to their sexual urges. So let's just say, how many of you have dogs? Okay, some dog, I have a dog, dog lovers in the room, all right. So let's just say your dog escapes from your yard, and he goes out and goes from house to house impregnating all the little female dogs in the neighborhood, all right? Your neighbors are probably not going to be, they're probably going to be really, really mad at you for letting your dog escape, right? They're going to be ticked, like, I can't believe this. But they're not going to be really mad at your dog, They're not going to be sitting your dog down and giving him a lecture because your dog just did what dogs do, right? That's why they have male dogs neutered because that is their natural tendency. But the Bible says that humans have been made in the image of God. We've been made in God's likeness. Man has been uniquely made by God to have a moral compass. Man has been uniquely made by God to live in relationship. Man has been uniquely made by God to live with a higher standard than the animal kingdom. But Paul says the Gentile or the person who is an unbeliever, they're like the animals. They just give into, they're just controlled by their lust. And he says, and this is the reason why, because they don't know God. They don't know that they've been made for a higher purpose. They exercise no self-control in the area of their sexual urges. Because they don't know God. They don't understand why they've been made. You know, our world doesn't understand this. That the sexual union is more than just a physical union. Do you realize that? It's also a spiritual one. It's not just two bodies coming together. It's, it's two, two souls coming together. It's two spirits coming together. And Christians, what, what Paul says in, in the book of 1 Corinthians, he says that, that literally you're joining because you're part of Christ and Christ is part of you. You're joining Christ to that person. Let me read this to you. 1 Corinthians, it'll be on the screen, chapter 6, verse 15. He says, do you not know your, your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? Certainly not. 
Or do you not know that he who is joined to a harlot is one body with her? For two, he says, shall become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. So he's telling us, hey, this isn't just a physical thing. It's a spiritual thing. And then Paul continues there in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 18 by echoing what he says here in 1 Thessalonians, flee sexual immorality. And he adds this, for every sin that a man does is outside his body, but he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. That's a heavy statement. Paul's saying when you sin in that way, you're literally hurting yourself. The writer of Proverbs in chapter 6, verse 32, put it this way. Whoever commits adultery with a woman lacks understanding. He who does so destroys his own soul. So engaging in sexual morality with someone is like giving away a part of yourself that you're never going to get back again. Now, when two people who are married are engaging in sexual relationships together, what it's doing, it's building the oneness. It's strengthening the oneness. The oneness in in that couple is getting stronger, but sex outside of marriage is more of a give and take, and you're giving away a part of yourself that you're never going to get back. It's like peeling the layers of an onion, and it gets to the point where there's just nothing left. That's why you see people who have lived promiscuous lifestyles and, and they, they just look empty. They come across empty. They come across like the, a shell of a person. But praise God that he is able, the Bible says, to, to restore the years that the locusts have eaten, and he makes us a new creation. And it's so amazing to me to see, see people who had lived that type of lifestyle prior to coming to Christ, and then they come to the Lord, and it's like he, all that was taken away, he gives back. And you just see there's a fullness in them. Now, God's commandments about sex are not for robbing our joy but they are for protecting our joy he doesn't want us to lose our joy because you see he knows that sin affects our relationship with him Our world tries to say that the best sex is forbidden sex. That's what they love to display in their movies and on television programs. But, you know, that is wrong. Sex between a man and a woman who are married to to one another and committed to one another, that is the best because God created sex to be between and enjoyed in marriage. And marriage is between one man and one woman In fact, let me rephrase that. One genetic male and one genetic female. Got to say, you know, the world we live in today, right? And we need to protect marriage because it's the only thing that we have left from the fall. And it's that picture, the Bible says, marriage is that picture of Christ and his church. So we're to abstain from sexual immorality, number one, because sexual sin reflects Secular values. 
Don't be like the Gentiles who just give in to their urges and their lusts. Number two, we we need to abstain because sexual sin defrauds people. Look at verse 6. That no one should take advantage of and defraud his brother in this matter because the Lord is the avenger of all such as we also forewarned you and testified. Now this is heavy. The Lord's the avenger. That's a heavy statement, isn't it? You think of an avenger, it's like, I'm going to get you. But this is a picture that he says that when you are engaging in sexual immorality with somebody, you're defrauding them. You're taking from them. You know, sometimes the world will use a a phrase that's really, really crude. They'll, They'll say, you know, I got a piece of him. I got a piece of her. And it's crude, but it's true. That is the picture that's taking place here. You're taking something that doesn't belong to you. In Proverbs chapter 6, verse 26, it says, By means of a seductress, a man is reduced to a crust of bread, and an adulteress will prey upon his precious life. You defraud that person. You're taking from them. But here's what we need to understand. That person is a child of God. So you're messing around with one of God's sons and one of God's daughters. And I think I can say to all the the men in the room who are dads of daughters, some, some dude does your daughter wrong. I mean, you're the avenger, right? I mean, <laughs> you're like, I'll go to jail. <laughs> you know? I mean, it's, you, it's crazy the things you can think about, right, as a dad. I won't ask for a show of hands, but you know, I'm, I'm sure some of you have murdered some people in your minds before that have maybe done wrong to your daughter. This is the picture. Now, Paul concludes his teaching on sex in 1 Corinthians 6 by saying this. It's really powerful. In verse 19, he says, Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own, for you were bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. He's saying, look, you're not your own. You've been bought with a price. You belong to God. Your temple, your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. And so we should abstain because sexual sin defrauds others. And then finally, number three, we're to abstain because when we commit sexual sin, we're resisting and rejecting the Holy Spirit. Look at verse eight. Therefore, he who rejects this does not reject man, but God who has also given us his Holy Spirit. Isn't this beautiful? Jesus says, I'm going to give you, I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit. He's going to be the helper. And sexual sin, come on, let's be honest, involves willful disobedience. It's rebellion. It doesn't just happen. Couples don't just end up naked in bed together. It doesn't just happen. There's a decision that is made. It's willful disobedience. There's, but, but here's the thing. God has put his Holy Spirit in us. And the Holy Spirit is like an alarm. He's like those sensors on new cars, right? 
You're backing up and you're getting too close to something and it starts beeping, right? Or now they have it where if you're driving down the road and you start to drift in your lane and it, and it starts beeping. In fact, I rented a car recently up in Monterey and it would break for me. <laughs> Drove me nuts. Every time I started to drift a little bit, it would put the brakes and so it's, that's how the Holy Spirit is, like that sensor, that, that going off, that alarm, like you're getting too close, you need to flee, you need to get out of here. Now, with the car, you, you can disengage that if you want. And people do the same thing by resisting the Holy Spirit. And what happens, the Bible says, is our heart gets hard. And suddenly we don't hear that beeping anymore we don't hear that alarm we resist the holy spirit rather than responding to the holy spirit and this is what happens when people do that their heart gets hard and then they find themselves far away from god and they find themselves back in bondage again to sin and it becomes something that they just can't believe that they're in that place again so god has given us his spirit we need to to listen to that Now, as Paul goes on here, he's going to contrast that behavior of defrauding others with the behavior that pleases God. And he's going to link back to what he was saying in chapter 3 about how he was encouraging them for abounding in love. And real quickly, I want to just see a walk that pleases God. I want to see three things as we finish out this section. Um, It happens when we love others genuinely. Look at verse 9. He says, But concerning brotherly love, you have no need that I should write to you. For you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. And indeed, you do so toward all the brethren who are in Macedonia, Macedonia. But we urge you, brethren, that you increase more and more. So he's saying, hey, don't settle always be growing. None of us have, have arrived. We say that all the time. Keep growing. Keep looking for ways to increase in love. But here's the beautiful thing. The Bible tells us that the love of God has been poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. Isn't that beautiful? And so God wants us just to allow that love that he's poured into us to be poured out of us. And we are most like God when we are loving others. So first he says, love others genuinely. Secondly, he says, do your work diligently. Look at verse 11. That you also aspire to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, so you're not a gossip or a busybody, and work with your own hands as we commanded you. And so it's that idea of, you know, I love to give this picture of God gave Adam and Eve, the first married couple, that mission to love him, love one another, be fruitful and multiply, and then take care of the garden, to take care of what God had put into their hands. That's our mission, guys. We love God, we love one another, and you take care You're responsible. You're a steward. You want to work diligently with what God has put into your hands. What has he entrusted to you? It's wisely investing our talents that, that God has given to us. So a walk that pleases God, loves others genuinely, does our work diligently, and then we live our lives purposely. Look at verse 12. That you may walk properly toward those who are on the outside, that you may lack nothing. And this is reminding us of our purpose. 
The Bible says, Jesus says that we're here to shine as lights in the darkness. Jesus has called us his ambassadors. And what's an ambassador? An ambassador represents their king and country in another country. Well, Paul tells us this world isn't our home. Our citizenship is in heaven. We have dual citizenship. Some of you might have, I don't know what you call it, three, what's three, not dual, thrice citizenship. You belong to the United States, you belong to Hungary, and you belong to heaven, okay? And we're to be ambassadors. We're to live with a purpose, to remember and so Paul lays out this distinction, this contrast. This is the Gentiles, they just give into their lust. And because of that, they defraud one another. They take from one another. But that's not to be you. As my people, I want you to love others genuinely. The love I've poured into you, let it pour out of you. I want you to be those who are doing your work diligently. And I want you to remember what your purpose is. That the way you live as my ambassadors is going to have an impact on those who are watching you. And that's the big idea. Because what Jesus is all about is wanting to see others come and be a part of his family and his kingdom. Amen? Lord, we thank you for your word to us tonight. And God, we, we want to be those who are walking in holiness, especially in this area of our sexual purity, that we wouldn't be like the world around us. But Lord, I pray that our marriages would be pure, that our marriage beds would be undefiled, that we would be those who would live in such a way that the world would see something different in us. Lord, may your love abound in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.